0: And I think about this all the time. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened.
1: Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 15. I got life with a little help from my friends, Kevin Shaw and Jody Winkler. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department.
0: for me. And I I told him, I was like, you know, if you're ever in my neighborhood, look me up. And I thought of, look me up means stop by, we'll go out and have a beer or, uh, you know, get a meal or something. But uh, in Kevin's mind, I guess that meant show up with the biggest U-Haul truck you could rent without a CDL license with his, his girlfriend, their two kids and a dog. And they just showed up one day so you know i let him stay and i helped him get a, a storage unit for his uh for his stuff and, and i I was doing really good i mean I, I had my own tree service thing going and and i was doing i had a firewood business going and i mean i was doing better than i'd ever done in my life so i, I had the money to help him out i got kevin a job uh, working for uh, a guy named bill green who had his own tree service and you know, I, everything seemed like it was okay, and real quick, I realized that you know Kevin had a had a substance abuse problem, and you know I had five kids, and my wife and my five kids were uh, were in the house, you know, and I just I couldn't have it around my kids, you know, and so I went to a guy that a realtor guy that I'd done a lot of work for, and got Kevin a house. I paid the first, the last, and and a security first, the first month's rent, last month's rent security, helped him get his utilities turned on, everything. You know, I did everything I could for this guy. And, you know, I just basically, after I got him out and got him into another house, I just basically, uh, you know, cut ties with him. I'd see him every now and then, but we, you know, we we weren't hanging, we weren't hanging around, you know. And... After I got arrested, I knew, I I had got some of the discovery materials from my co-defendant, and I I knew that they were looking for Kevin. I sent my investigators down to talk to him uh, where where he was in jail. he had gotten arrested for going in possession of a weapon, which was a, a mandatory minimum 15 years to life. He had a shotgun. So he was facing a lot of time in prison. So we sent an investigator down to talk to him. And he told the investigator that him and I had never talked about any homicides. We'd never, uh, talked about any crimes that, you know, he didn't know anything about anything that had to do with, you know, the, the murder of William Little. So fast forward till Charles Reinard and, uh, Dan Katz, the witness whisperer, go down and, uh, talk to Kevin. And now all of a sudden he's got a, you know, a 50 page statement and, uh, you know, basically, you know, Jamie told me everything. So when he testified, he testified that you know he didn't get anything in, in return for his testimony. But we found out through uh, court records, filing motions, and, and freedom of information, and, and and we had to buy the the transcripts of the court records. He didn't just get a deal; he got a he got a beautiful deal. He got he got like seven years. We got like eight years knocked off of a, a, a mandatory minimum 15-year sentence. And, you know, the way the federal sentencing statutes work is, you know, you get points for everything that you've ever been convicted for. Kevin had so many convictions, it would have been an act of God for him to get the 15 years. So... He came to court, and on on the first day, you could tell he didn't, you know, he he was trying to backtrack off of what he'd originally said. He was trying to backtrack off of it. And Frank Pitzel, you know, let the state have a continuance. And, you know, I asked one of the guards if anybody had been to visit Kevin that that night before we went back to trial the next day. And he's like, yeah, the detectives in the states, you know, the state's attorneys were here to talk to him. The very next day, when we went to court, he was laser focused. He was right back on on what he'd originally he'd originally told him from the beginning. So, you know, what really hurt me about Kevin was that you know I did everything I could to try to help this guy. I took him, I took his family in, I got him a job. I did everything I could to help this guy, and and the way he repaid that was to. Get up on the stand and just and just lie, you know, and, and you know, I was trying to help him get his life together and he helped the state take mine.
1: Kevin Shaw came to detectives' attention in December of nineteen ninety-eight, shortly after Detective Crow retired, and Dan Katz and Rick Barkus were assigned to the Bill Little case full time. One of the first items on their agenda was to subpoena Jamie's incarceration file from Centralia Prison for the purpose of attempting to locate any visitors, cellmates, or other contacts, which may provide additional information. The list revealed that Kevin Shaw was Jamie's cellmate from June 26, 1995 to January 17, 1996, 202 days in total. It's stated on the police report that Katz decided to look into Kevin Shaw's incarceration file for two reasons. First, Shaw's name was brought to Barkas and Katz's attention by Dave Coley. Jamie's ex-employer in St. Petersburg, Florida. And second, Shaw was Jamie's cellmate for the longest period of time. After reviewing Shaw's file, they noticed that he had previous armed robbery arrests and tried unsuccessfully to parole in Florida. Shaw was arrested by the U.S. Marshals for felon and possession of a firearm and also had a state charge for carjacking and grand theft auto. He was looking at a lot of time. In early June of 2000, Jamie's appellate defense investigator, Don Sorensen, spoke with Shaw and reported that Shaw stated that Jamie never told him anything about a murder. In interviews conducted with McLean County in June and July of 2000, Shaw changed his story, stating that Jamie confessed the murder to him when they were cellmates in Centralia. In July 2000, Shaw received a downward departure on his federal sentence. The following is an excerpt from Shaw's sentencing motion. Immediately after the defendant was charged, on October 21, 1999, with being a felon in possession of a firearm, the defendant and his attorney began their cooperation. The defendant's co-defendant was charged in state court with burglaries and firearms possession, and the defendant agreed to testify against his co-defendant if necessary. The defendant was also contacted by state's attorneys from the state of Illinois regarding his testimony in a murder trial that will take place in the state of Illinois. The defendant has provided information, valuable to the murder trial, and has agreed to testify in that trial if called upon to do so. The defendant has provided local law enforcement agents with information concerning burglaries that he and his co-defendant participated in and has been assisting them in solving some of those previously unsolved burglaries. The defendant has agreed to testify against those individuals and has agreed to testify in the state murder trial in the state of Illinois. As a result of the defendant's cooperation, the United States respectfully requests that this court depart below the defendant's minimum mandatory sentence of 15 years and reduce the defendant's guideline sentence by a range of two levels. Granting this motion would reward the defendant for his assistance of the United States and local law enforcement agencies and would be in the interest of justice. Shaw's plea deal stipulates that he would serve 48 months concurrent with his federal sentence, followed by three years probation. Shaw testified at Jamie's trial in January 2001 while incarcerated at a federal prison in South Carolina. He did an in-court ID of Jamie and went on to testify that when they were in Centralia together, Jamie told him about a robbery, but did not mention anything about a murder. He spends a lot of time dancing around his prior statements, But the most important part of his testimony is that he said he did not receive a deal. Question. And it would be accurate to say that you weren't forthcoming with the truth, as you have told us and Mr. Renard, until after both your attorney and Mr. Renard indicated to you that your cooperating with them would be relayed to your sentencing judge, correct? Answer. I think I was pretty truthful with both of them, if you check your records. Question. Right. What I'm asking is, you opened up to them and became truthful, as you say, only after you were told by your attorney and by Mr. Renard that your cooperation in being truthful and divulging this information would be relayed to your sentencing judge, right? Answer. Yep. Question. And at your sentencing hearing, was the judge, in fact, made aware of your cooperating? Answer. I honestly don't know. It was mentioned to him, but... Question. As far as whether he took it into consideration, you don't know? Answer. Yeah, I have no idea. Question. Okay. Answer. I got a lot of time for a little thing. It is abundantly clear from the sentencing transcript that both the judge, the attorneys, and Shaw knew very well that Shaw was getting a deal for cooperating in a murder trial in Illinois.
0: Winkler I got introduced to him somebody introduced me introduced him to me because uh, he needed a job and I put him to work you know and and Jody was a great worker I mean I I I gave him you know 100 125 150 dollars a day cash money depending on how much money we made that day and he was worth every bit of it and just like Kevin I realized that Jody had a had a drug problem too. I would drop him off at this hotel down the street from where I lived, nice hotel, $30 a day, in an area that had a grocery store, it had, you know, fast food, you know, it had everything you needed for a single guy, you know, and he'd show up. The next day he'd be broke Well, he was single. So I just figured, you know, he was out going to the bar or whatever, you know, and the next day he would show up and he'd be broke. So he'd be like, man, can I can I get a draw on my on my money for today? So I'd give him cigarettes, whatever, not give him some money, and, and that went on and went on, and, and finally, you know, I went out one morning and he was asleep in the alley behind my house when I was going out the garbage, and, and that's when he paid clean and was like, look, man, I got a, you know I got a drug problem. You know, I told him I said, look, listen, this is what I'm going to do for you, man. I said I'm going to give you twenty dollars a day for your cigarettes and stuff like that. I'm going to hold the rest. I had a, a little efficiency apartment behind my house. And, you know, I said, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hold the rest of your money and I'm gonna do this for you for a month. I'm gonna do it for 30 days. And then after 30 days, I'm gonna give you all your money and you're going to have to get it figured out, Joe. You're going to have to figure out what you're, you know, what's going on because I can't have you sleeping in the alley behind my house. And and I, I just can't have it, you know? And, and, uh, So that's what I did for Jody. I I gave him, you know, I gave him his money and he just disappeared. You know, I I, I didn't see him again. And I knew he was from Bloomington. The person that introduced me to him was from Bloomington as well. So I knew he was from Bloomington. So fast forward, I'm in the county jail and I see that they've arrested Jody on a parole violation and some other stuff that he had going on. And he goes straight to the detectives and uh, is asking them, you know, what you know, what can I get? What kind of a deal can I get? You know, I was I, I was living down there with snow, and and he did the same thing that that Kevin Shaw did. He he traded my life for a sweetheart deal. And, and what's really disgusting, I think, about Jody's deal is that his sentencing judge was Judge Bernardi, who was also my trial judge, and. I found a a police report where it said, Jody had, he had agreed to the the court accepting evidence in aggravation and mitigation prior to the tendering of the police. So I read that as his lawyers in the state got together with the judge and talked about the mitigating and aggravating circumstances and the deal and everything. So then when they went to court, if you read the, the sentencing transcript, Jody Winkler's lawyer didn't mention one piece of mitigating evidence, not one. I mean, you know, he didn't say, hey, Judge, you know, uh, this guy is, uh, you know, he's a drug addict. He needs drug rehab. You know, he's a father. He needs to pay his, you know, child support. He can't do anything for his kid while he's in jail. He didn't say anything because he knew he didn't have to. The deal was already done. Jody was facing an extended term. It was his third time in prison. And just like Bruce Rowan, <laughs> Jody got less time for his third offense facing an, an, an extended term than he did for a second. So it's unbelievable that I there, there's no way no one will ever convince me that Judge Bernardi didn't know that Jody was, was getting the deal that he was getting in return for testimony. I, nobody, nobody will ever convince me of that. So, there's a state attorney, a ex-state attorney, her name is uh, Stephanie Wong, and she's still practicing as a a private attorney in Bloomington now. She was the state attorney that was working on uh, Jody Winkler's case at the time. I wonder if she'll ever talk to us and, and tell us the truth about, you know, what was discussed about that deal.
1: The first statement we have from Winkler is from November 24th, 1999. He stated he lived and worked with Jamie around June through July of 1999 and that he didn't know Jamie prior to meeting him in St. Petersburg but that he was from Bloomington so he had heard his name before. Winkler went on to say that he and Jamie took a half day off because it rained and they went to the beach because Jody had never seen the beach before. Even though he had been in Florida since March of 1999, Winkler said he and Jamie sat in the truck, drank beer and talked about old time friends, the Northsiders, prison time and a little bit of everything. Winkler stated he brought up the Clark murder a couple of times, and that he told Jamie the first time he got arrested, detectives were asking him if he knew anything about the Clark murder. He went on to say that when he brought it up for a third time, Jamie stated that he did it, and was asked specifically by detectives if he gave any details, such as how much money or anything about the gun used, but that Jamie did mention that he didn't know Bill Little. A couple of months later, on January 3rd, 2000, police again approached Winkler in jail, and Winkler told a similar story, except he stated that they were at the beach at night, and then added that Jamie had told him at the time that they would not find the gun, and that Winkler pressed him about this over the next couple of days, and that Jamie had said, it's just buried. But he didn't say where it was buried, or what kind of gun it was. Critically, at the end of this second interview, detectives made a point to ask Winkler if he'd ever been promised anything in exchange for his statement. And Winkler said no. Julie, just a couple things. We
0: told you we couldn't promise you anything in return of this interview. Is that correct? That's correct.
1: On January 28th of 2000, a plea hearing was held for Winkler before Judge Bernardi, Jamie Snow's trial judge. Winkler was in jail on a parole violation because he had committed forgery while on parole. At the top of the plea agreement, it states, The defendant consents to the courts receiving evidence in aggravation and mitigation in advance of the tender of this plea. This means they already talked about everything, worked out the who, what, where, when, and whys of the plea deal before coming into court. So it need not be stated for the record. Translation, They worked out the deal before coming to court. This is evident in the fact that there is absolutely no mitigating evidence presented before Judge Bernardi and no attempt to add mitigation pleas for the record. Judge Bernardi, all right, I'll accept the proposed agreement. I'll ask you, Mr. Winkler, if you did, between March 10th and March 12th of 99, in Bloomington, McLean County, commit a forgery by knowingly with intent to defraud, deliver a check drawn on Union Planner's bank account of Paulette Crago in the amount of $929.26, which was capable of defrauding another, and that it purported to have been made or by authority of Lance Winkler and Winkler Fence Company, and you knew that the check was not made by authority of Lance Winkler or the Winkler Fence Company. Mr. Winkler, yes, Judge Bernardi, you understand that's a class three, so the maximum penalties for that felony is five years. For you, it would be up to ten because you have a prior class three or greater. You understand that? Mr. Winkler. Yes. Judge Bernardi. And you understand on top of that would be a one year mandatory supervised release or parole? Mr. Winkler. Yes. Prior to his arrest for writing a fraudulent check from his father's business, Winkler had the following charges. 1999, Class 3 Aggravated Battery, 2 years. And Class 2 Burglary, 4 years. 1997, Class 4 Unlawful Restraint, 1 year. And Class 2, Controlled Substance, 3 years. When he was paroled for the 1997 charges, he caught the forgery charge. Judge Bernardi made it clear that the maximum penalty for the forgery charge is 5 years. But for Winkler, Winkler, It would be up to 10 years. Judge Bernardi goes on to seal the deal. Judge Bernardi, Mr. Winkler, did anyone threaten, force, or coerce you in any way to get you to enter into these pleas? Mr. Winkler, no. Judge Bernardi, and you were promised the sentence and restitution as a condition? Is that fair? Mr. Winkler, yes. Judge Bernardi, to say... All right. Mr. Winkler, yes. We know the condition. Winkler would testify in Jamie's trial nearly a year later, on January 5, 2001. Winkler regurgitated his first police report, leaving out the part about being at the beach at night and Jamie telling him about the gun. But again, the critical parts about Winkler's testimony are the references to a deal. The following are relevant excerpts between the state and defense attorney in reference to a deal. Question. For your cooperation and your testimony in this prosecution, are you expecting or hoping to receive anything? Answer. No. Question. Have you been paid anything? Answer. No. Question. Pardon me. Just involved because you're a good citizen? Is that correct? Answer. I guess you could say that. Question. You contacted them or they contacted you? Answer. No, they contacted me. Question. And did you ask them on or about the 24th of November 1999 when you were speaking with them to know what you were going to receive for your information? Did you ask them that? Answer. No. Did I ask them? Question. Right. Answer. I asked them what I could get, yes. Question. For your cooperation and your information in this case, right? Answer. Correct. Question. Did you in the deposition of the charges that you were in custody for at the time and after you cooperated with them and gave them information, did you receive any leniency or consideration in disposing of your pending charges? Answer. No. Question. Did you ask anyone if you could receive something for your information? Answer, when we first started to talk, yes. Question, when the police contacted you in November of 1999, as I understand your testimony responding to Mr. Pistols' question, it was that they approached you and asked you if you had information about this case. Is that fair? Answer, not really. They come got me from down in the county and took me to the little office. You know, talked to. And I told the detective when he seen me, that I probably had a good idea, that I knew what he wanted to talk to me about. Question, okay. And when the conversation started, was it confirmed that? Answer, yes. Question, you were talking. You were thinking about talking about the same thing? Answer, correct. Question, and at the same point, you asked whether or not this could? Answer, benefit me. Question, do you some good? Answer, yes. Question, and what did Detective Katz tell you? Answer, that he couldn't do anything. Question, and subsequent to that time, after that time, has the state's attorney's office promised you anything or given you any advantage or consideration for the testimony that you've given? Answer, no. Question, when you spoke with Detective Katz and he said he couldn't do anything for you in consideration of or in exchange for your cooperation. Did, however, he say to you that he would make the state's attorney's office aware of your cooperation in providing information? Answer. Well, my cooperation, yes. Question. He told you that? Answer. He told them that he would tell them that I had some information, yes. Question. But he couldn't promise you anything, right? Answer. Yeah. He said he couldn't do anything for me. A thorough review of Winkler's testimony shows that Winkler repeatedly denied that he received anything in return for his testimony against Jamie, that his testimony was false, and that Winkler knew it. Furthermore, Jamie's attorney should have raised the impropriety question about how Winkler was not only sentenced, but given a secret sweetheart deal by Jamie's trial judge, Judge Bernardi, before he testified, and then testified that he did not receive a deal. Clearly, the deal was done well before trial. Jamie's attorney should have raised hell about that, brought Stephanie Wong on the stand to determine the nature of the deal, and he should have held Judge Bernardi and the state court's feet to the fire.
0: Jody did the same thing to me that Kevin did. You know, I tried to help these guys, and they saw an opportunity to help themselves. And, you know, the truth didn't have anything to do with it. So these are the guys that helped me. Get a get a life sentence, and this is the sort of of evidence. I mean, they they paid the, the McLean County State Attorney's Office might as well have just went and handed those guys handfuls of money, you know, because uh, they purchased their testimony in return for uh, for deals. So, to me personally, those two kind of are like are kind of sort of like Karen Strong. I mean, they. They were people that I knew, and uh, they just traded on me, and it, 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 uh, it hurt me the most. So, personally, it hurt me the
1: most. So there you have it. Two informants who actually received outrageously sweet deals with sentence modifications prior to testifying, and both stating they didn't receive anything in exchange for their testimonies. Take a closer look at Kevin Shaw. 10. Kevin Shaw had quite the criminal history. Can you tell us a little bit about his past and how it played into him testifying against Jamie?
2: Well, Ray is actually the expert on Shaw. But yeah, Shaw was in a lot of trouble. He was arrested in Florida for a carjacking charge that found out that a guy they knew had a lot of money on him. And Shaw and a friend made a plan to catch him in his car and take his money. They found the guy, beat him in the face, dragged him out of the car, and drove his car into a pond to cover it up. But Shaw wasn't even on the radar in relation to this crime until he got the federal charge for a felon having a firearm. When he was arrested for that, Shaw stated to the feds that he had information about a murder in Illinois. That's when the ATF contacted county state's attorney and they were all over it. So in July of 2000 he was sentenced to 110 months and remanded to U.S. Marshals for his crimes. In February of 2001 the state approved the plea deal for Shaw to serve 48 months to run concurrent with the federal sentence. I talked to his attorney personally and he bragged about what a sweet deal Shaw had gotten.
1: Ronnie Wright was the topic of discussion a lot during Shaw's testimony. Shaw said he had a bad reputation and that him and Jamie had some trouble. Can you tell us a little bit about what Ronnie has to do with this case?
2: Well, all I know about Ronnie Wright is that he came forward to do the right thing. He seemed to be very remorseful of his testimony. And like others, he didn't really think it would amount to much. Certainly that Jamie wouldn't be, you know, certainly that he wouldn't be a part of, you know, putting Jamie away for life. Ronnie first approached Jamie's wife, Tammy Snow, and then Tammy told Jamie, and that's how that got the ball rolling on Ronnie's recantation. Ronnie said in his affidavit that he got into a fight with Jamie in county jail over a game of dominoes, and that it escalated. And Ronnie ended up getting thrown out of the pot. And his revenge on Jamie was to call the cops and tell them that Jamie confessed to him. I'm sure he didn't think it would end up this way. And thank God he came forward.
1: Have either of these two old friends come forward to recant or even talk to anyone?
2: Kevin Shaw told
1: Ray that he gave a
2: statement that he wanted to get back up to Illinois for an appeal that he was working on for some charges up there. So, you know, he basically got a free trip to Illinois. Ray is convinced that Shaw is a serial informant and has informed on several cases, um, including federal cases. Because when he came forward initially, when he was talking to the ATF, he was talking about the you know a murder of a prosecutor in another state. But we're always open. To people coming forward and telling
1: us the truth. Leslie, Jamie mentioned that Shaw was recalled to the stand a few days after his testimony and changed his story. What happened at trial?
3: Well, what happened with Kevin Shaw was so reminiscent of what happened with a few others and Detective Thomas Russell, and even what they did to Jamie when he took the stand. The prosecution had this narrative. They wanted the prior conviction that Jamie got for corruption for not assisting with that robbery case and the way they found him hiding in the attic to substitute for this murder. Shawl is on the stand saying that Jamie never told him about a murder. He never said he was in prison for one as a cellmate and that he said he was there for the robbery and hiding some guy in the attic. Well, the prosecution was trying to say that Jamie was talking about the murder, not the robbery, and they tried three times to get him to agree, which he would not. So they pulled out personal notes that they had about the interview that he had with the police just the summer before. And luckily, Jamie's defense attorney, Frank Pitzel, objected. The prosecutor insisted on refreshing Kevin Shaw's memory with his personal notes only. And the judge was actually going to allow it, but said he'd probably have more success with the transcription. So he would let him recall him on Monday after he provided Frank with a copy of that transcription, because Frank was also pleading that he never got the transcription in the first place. So how he was going to get away with that just baffles me. So anyways, they bring Shaw back on Monday and read him the questions from the interview just six months prior And Shaw agrees that he probably did say Jamie was referencing the murder then, but as he recalls it today, he remembers that he was referencing the robbery, not the murder. He does agree that he told detectives that Jamie was afraid he would go away for life. So Frank gets to examine him next, and he does good. He gets him to admit that they were all drinking or smoking pot when they talked about crimes, even while in their cell and that often people in prison lie about crimes to appear tough. He's adamant that Jamie never said he shot Bill Little or anyone ever. And he gets the whole, are you an honest and truthful person spiel? And the, well, you had access to a phone and you never contacted authorities this whole time spiel. And Shaw concedes to both those points. And importantly, he admits to Frank that when Jamie's defense investigator interviewed him around the same time as detectives, he told him that he did say Jamie never said anything to make him think he was involved in the crime. And most importantly, what I liked the most is Frank got him to say that, yeah, Jamie was scared, scared of being a suspect in something he didn't do. So the prosecution comes back and says, well, didn't you tell Jamie several times he had nothing to worry about if he didn't do it? And Shaw says, yeah, that's right. And then the prosecution's like, well, why is he still worried then? Like a dun-dun-dun moment. Like, because Shaw commanded Jamie not to be worried if he didn't do it, and then Jamie was still worried, it means he did it. And I thought that was really petty, but it just shows the desperation on their part. So, Frank doesn't let that go and he comes back again and gets Shaw to clarify that yes, Jamie was upset and worried down in Florida when the grand jury was convening, but only because more and more people kept coming forward with false statements. And very importantly, he admits to Frank that it was made clear to him that his cooperation would be relayed to the sentencing judge. And in fact, he heard it said at his trial himself. So Shaw was then even recalled for a third day, and this time as a defense witness. So you might remember before, we talk about all these witnesses and why Frank doesn't get to ask them certain questions, and the objections will always be that he didn't lay the proper foundation. So we're we're saying, well, why couldn't he just call him as a defense witness? Well, this time he did. So... That's why Shaw comes back for a third day. And now Frank gets to interview him first. So this time he just wants to talk to him about Ronnie Wright. And uh, he gets him to say that he's a drug addict and a liar. And he recalls a good example of why he might have had it out for Jamie. And we'll talk about him later probably. But that was the purpose of this whole third day. So Kevin was a big witness, even though he never really said anything too meaningful one way or the other, and he didn't want to publicly take responsibility for throwing Jamie under the bus, but he wouldn't clear him either, and he did get a deal for it. The sentencing paperwork actually says he deserves the deal because he offered to testify for a murder case in Illinois, and it's dated just four months before Jamie's trial. So I don't know why Frank couldn't get that. I think that maybe it wasn't finalized, but that was the motion that was put through to court. It was all done in in advance of Jamie's trial for that recommendation for that deal.
2: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is that they were on their way out and they had only been Selly's for like three months. And then Jamie's just going to confess all of this to him. And tell him he can come down to Florida. And, you know, Jamie, you know, he came down there and he helped him out and all that stuff. But, you know, it, it just, what Jamie said was that guys don't talk about that stuff. Like when they're at the end, you know, of a prison sentence. You know, they're talking about what they're going to do, their future, you know where are you going to go? All of that stuff, you know. And it, it was just interesting to me that you know they were cellies for three months, and then all of a sudden Jamie's bogged down. You know, you know another big old you know confession to murder right before he gets out of prison because Jamie got out before Shaw did, so he's just going to like on the way out confess to a murder.
3: Well, obviously, that's a bunch of BS because Jamie said, if you're ever in Florida, look me up. So that's just proof to what Jamie's saying, that he's all excited about getting out and thinking about what he's going to do. And he, you know, extended an olive branch to this guy, one that he regretted a lot. But that's why he offered for him to come down because he was so happy to be on his way out. That's what they were talking about. They weren't talking about this 1991 Bloomington thing. Exactly.
1: Jody Winkler literally could not wait to tell detectives what he had to say about Jamie. He told the detectives that he knew what they wanted before they even asked, how was his trial performance in relation to his original interview?
3: Winkler only interviewed with BPD twice, got his own deal, and then 12 months later testified against Jamie at his trial. He did not participate in the grand jury because he was on the run himself in Florida at that time. And he was not called for Susan's trial, only for Jamie's, since he didn't know anything specific about the crime, and he never mentioned Susan. So at Jamie's trial, he only had one story to repeat once, and it was his first time being cross-examined. He told it exactly how he did to the BPD the year before. Nothing really changed. He got all three supposed conversations to match. Now, recall he's the one that said Jamie confessed to him when they were at the beach in the truck drinking beers after a half day of work in the rain. He's the one that was a drug addict that, de- that Jamie helped sort his life out and let live in his extra apartment for free. So at trial, he always used the word indicate to say that Jamie confessed. He said, quote, we just talked about hearsay things a lot like that he indicated they were going to indict him. He indicated he had done it. So that's the big bombshell confession. He indicated he'd done it. He also told the jury the story about Jamie asking, did I ever tell you I did it? And the story about Jamie saying he was laying low. He really had no confession to testify to. But the prosecution kept phrasing the questions loaded like saying, what did he say about the Clark Station robbery murder? Did you have any more conversations with the defendant about the robbery murder? So Frank examined him next and was kind of weak. He did as usual, are you a good citizen? You had access to a phone, did you not? Why did you not contact the authorities ever? The only good thing Frank did was bring out the conversation he had with the detectives in November of 99, right after his forgery arrest. And he got Winkler to admit that he asked for a favor in return for his cooperation. So the prosecution did a redirect and made him specify that he did not get promised any leniency for his cooperation. But luckily, Frank came right back on redirect and had him clarify that Detective Katz explicitly said, no, he can't promise anything, but he will make sure that his information will be forwarded to the state's attorney. So bingo, that's the testimony about how that favor worked its way through the judicial system. And that was really it. For such a huge confession witness that heard it from the horse's mouth three times, he had nothing to say, really. Who goes to the
2: beach when they, you know, they work outside, they do tree work, and it rains them out of work, and they go to the beach. My point is... All of these witnesses, these supposed confession witnesses, they put them alone with Jamie. You know, they can't be in a group. They can't be like, you know, multiple people heard this. It's always they, they land up being alone with Jamie. And that whole scenario is ridiculous because that beach confession was the only time, you know, that Jody said, yeah, he came right out and told me.
3: You know what I want to know, too, is why if Jody was so disturbed by that and he jumped out of the truck because he didn't want to hear it anymore and went for a walk in the rain, why did he drive home and go back to Jamie's property and live with a killer? Great point.
1: I do have to say that it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do you go to the beach when it's raining?
2: Well, I mean, that's basically what they said was that, you know, they couldn't work that day, so they went to the beach. But they have a home. I mean, why, why is he going to drive his truck to the beach and sit there alone with Jody Winkler to confess?
3: Yeah, and how old was Jamie at that time? What was he, 30? 34, I would imagine.
2: It was right before his arrest.
3: And wasn't at this time Winkler not paying him rent, living there for free, and a drug addict? So why would Jamie be taking care of him and sheltering him and helping him at work and doing everything for him for free? And then you want to take him on a date to the beach to confess in the rain.
2: Jody, the guy he found in an alley behind his house. Yes. So he's going to take him to the beach in the rain.
3: Yeah. And I think Frank was having a bad day because Frank is a jerk. And I'm sure he would have loved to ask this guy who paid for the beer what what else were you guys talking about you know was it romantic that day <laughs> you know because frank didn't ask anything like that and he's done it to other witnesses before so you know i just think that this was one of his bad performance days i mean they did testify on the same day uh kevin Shaw and winkler so maybe he was just exhausted by the time winkler got there
1: that's a great point but we all know that frank pitzel had a lot of bad days we invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated.
3: In episode 15, Jamie helped his friends get back on their feet in their time of need. They repaid him eventually, in the only way they knew how. Months after Kevin Shaw got out of prison and brought his whole family to live with Jamie, he was set to spend 15 years in prison again. But he told authorities that Jamie implicated himself in a murder, so he only got four years. Jody Winkler was a guy who just couldn't keep it together. Within two years of his own felony arrest, he met Jamie, lived and worked under him, told the police Jamie confessed in a truck at the beach, and then was awarded a sentence of four instead of 10 years for that felony. With friends like these, who needs enemies? If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. These weren't the only wolves in sheep's clothing. A man of the cloth was also planning to bear false witness against thy neighbor. How did Reverend Bill Gaddis get away with it? That's next time on Snow Files.